Minneapolis. My name is Anna Carter Florence, Associate Minister at the Church, moderator of today's forum, and our guest is Dr. Ron Markman, physician, attorney, and courtroom psychiatrist for over 20 years. Dr. Markman's responsibility is to interview alleged killers in order to assess their state of health. Ultimately, he must decide whether someone who has murdered is sane or insane. Today, Dr. Markman will explore with us some of the ironies of our legal system, including the widely held belief that one must be mentally ill in order to commit a crime. And the title he has chosen for this forum is Understanding Violence and Violent Crimes. Dr. Markman, it is a privilege to have you with us today, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. Welcome. Thank you, Reverend Florence, for your kind words, and I'd like to thank uh, uh, you for the invitation here to speak at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Uh, I'm most privileged and honored. Uh, I'm here to talk about the subject of violence, which is a very complex subject. Unfortunately, the complexity arises because it has been readily politicized over the years, and it requires an understanding of that politicization to uh, make uh, certain uh, statements about it. We have individuals who have their own agenda and their own special interests who look upon violence as their bailiwick. For instance, individuals in the field of social service look upon child abuse as one of the major causes. Individuals in the penal system talk about the inefficiency of incarcerating people and letting them out too soon and not rehabilitating them as one of the major causes for violence in our society. Individuals who uh, talk about uh, uh, family structure, uh, family integrity in the home, the presence of both parents to raise children. Uh, look upon their problem or their bailiwick as the most important area of violence creation. Individuals who are interested in gun control talk about our violent society as a manifestation of the readily available guns throughout the country. I could spew out a lot of statistics with regards to violence. For instance, there are 20,000 homicides every year in this country. One out of every three women in the state of California, where I'm from, will be raped in her lifetime based on actuarial statistics uh, over the past five years. Uh, individuals who are released from prison uh, nationwide, 62% of them will reoffend within two years after their release. So we're running into a revolving door problem that is not being solved. And it's very much like a story I'd like to share with you of an individual young man who uh, needed to buy a suit of clothes. And he walked into a haberdasher and saw a suit that he fell in love with. But it was the last suit of that kind in the store, and it was the wrong size. Uh, the tailor and the owner of the store said, try it on, I'm a very good tailor, I'm sure we can help you in terms of adjusting and fitting that suit to your size. So he put the suit on and it clearly didn't become him, it didn't look well on him, 
And he was about ready to uh, reject the suit when the tailor said, look, we can do whatever you need, whatever needs to be done for that suit to be fixed. He said, but you really can't. Don't you see that in front here, it's a little too long? And the tailor said, well, if you bend at the hips just a little bit, that'll alter that, uh, the, the front of the suit and it'll, it'll look a little better. He said, but if I do that, then the back becomes too short. He said, well, if you bend your knees a little bit, uh, then that will allow for that adjustment, and then the jacket will look fine. And the man said, well, if I do that, then the left sleeve becomes too short. He said, well, then you crank your neck a little bit to the right, and that'll alter the left sleeve. Well, they went through a few more of those kinds of motions, and lo and behold, the man bought the suit, put it on, and walked out the store. And two women were standing out the store, out, outside the store, and one looked at this man as he walked out and, and said to her friend, isn't it tragic, that poor man, he's suffering from arthritis so badly that he has difficulty in walking. And the second one said, yes, but look how good the suit fits him. <laughs> the, the problem with violence in our country is that we're looking at it from that Taylor's point of view. We're looking at it piecemeal. We're looking at it uh, from special interests. We're looking at it from where is the money available in the federal government system or in the state system. And we're looking at it from diverse points of view. And nobody is looking at it from a very scientific or realistic point of view in order to help solve the problem. Or in, and another example I can give you is that within the black community, there is serious concern about the fact that although black males comprise only 50%, uh, only 6% of society, they comprise 50% of all individuals in the criminal justice system incarcerated. And they look upon that as a racial issue. The fact of the matter is, that it's not necessarily a racial issue. Part of it may be, for, in, uh, for an example, given the victim of a crime, it is more plausible or more likely that if the individual is white, regardless of whether the assailant is black or white, the assailant will get more time than if the victim is black. It has nothing to do necessarily with the color of the assailant, the color of the victim, uh, controls for the most part under those circumstances. But the fact of the matter with regards to the percentages that are spewed out in this connection has to do with misinterpretation of data. I noticed when I came into town uh, yesterday that uh, lo and behold the Minneapolis St. Paul monthly book has a, a major article, Stop the Violence. A and the concerns that you have here in this part of the country are no different uh, than the concerns we have in Southern California and Los Angeles, only I must say we're probably five years ahead of you. We're very innovative. Uh, we uh, have riots well before most areas of the country. We have tax revolts well before more, most areas of the country. And if you recall our last election, we had the issue of euthanasia come on the ballot for the first time. and. As I mention euthanasia, I bring into question 
one of the issues that I think plays a part in the level of violence and how people look at it in this country. The idea of an individual being able to choose when he or she can or should die if he or she is suffering from a terminal illness puts into question the sanctity and the value of life. Notwithstanding the fact that we're talking about quality of life, it's true. However, when you allow an individual to choose uh, the taking of his own life at a given time, what happens psychologically, particularly when this is a position expounded by the government that sets moral tone and value, is that in a certain percentage of the population, the message will get across that life doesn't have the value that it once did. Put another way, and in another area, and notwithstanding the fact that uh, uh, abortion is a very, very emotional issue, and there are people on both sides of that problem. From a psychological point of view, the idea of legally providing abortions via governmental sanction, and again, provides a message to individuals, not everybody, and certainly not all on an intellectual level, that the sanctity of life is something different than what we thought it was that people are expendable. And within the system of violence in this country, we have behavior that occurs that demonstrates that people are expendable because the individuals who commit these violent acts, and I don't call them assailants, I call them predators, are individuals who don't look upon their victims as human beings. They look upon their victims as objects. For those of you who are familiar with the philosopher Martin Buber, he talks about two types of relationships. The relationship of I-thou, that is of two individuals relating as peers to each other, and the relationship of I-it, the individual vis-a-vis -vis another person, but that other person is an object, someone to be used, someone to be taken advantage of, someone to obtain pleasure from and then discard that individual when you see fit. And most predators who function in our society today do so at that level. How else can you explain a 17-year-old boy sexually molesting an 80-year-old woman? This is solely on the, on the basis of the use of that individual as an object rather than another human being. Now, what makes me an expert in the area of violence? Well, for openers, I consider myself a human being, or maybe not. Maybe I'm just man, generically. Uh, a professor of mine once said that man is the missing link between the ape and the human being. And I think that when I look around the world and see how man treats his fellow man, whether you're in Bosnia, or whether you're in Northern Ireland, or whether in, uh, you're in uh, uh, Russia, uh, whether you're in the Kashmir in India, whether you're in the United States, uh, or whether you're uh, in uh, the Far East and the relationship of, say, the Japanese to the Koreans, we see that there is a general uh, distrust between people. And under those circumstances, 
it is not that we are a more violent society, but we are, so to speak, and uh, you civil libertarians may take umbrage at it, but we're a freer society. Uh, I was mentioning earlier that uh, we had a shooting across the street from my house in a very nice neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, it was at midnight, and I ran out thinking that it was the son of a judge who lived across the street. Uh, what had really happened was that he was followed by three individuals. Uh, he got out of his car in the driveway. Uh, one of them accosted him with a gun, not knowing that he was a reserve police officer and carried his own weapon with him. Uh, he then took out the weapon and shot and killed the assailant. The other two uh, took off but were apprehended ten blocks away. One of them could not speak English and was released as uninvolved in the crime. The second was given a nominal bail of $5,000, never showed up for any more hearings, and is nowhere to be found anymore. So of the three individuals that were involved in this very lethal terroristic activity and violent acti activity, only uh, one was supposedly brought to justice, but he never got there simply because uh, he is wandering the streets and we don't even know where he is or whether he's in this country anymore. Well, that makes me human being. Secondly, I'm a father. Uh, what does that, uh, how does that make me an expert in violence? Well, uh, there are a lot of people out here and I'd like a show of hands if you'd be honest. How many of you have ever thought of killing your children or strangling them? That's an emotion, I, by the laughter, I think that's an emotion that we all have. Uh, and I love my children dearly and never would have come close to doing anything like that, but these fleeting moments do occur. Uh, and it means that we as human beings, or man, and we as within our position uh, and roles as father, husband, a worker, etc., neighbor, do have these emotions of wanting to kill. It is an innate emotion that's present in everyone from pacifist to terrorist. Now, the, luckily, most people don't. And we think of killing as a manifestation of anger. Well, in fact, killing is not a manifestation of anger, solely or primarily. In my experience over the years, and I've examined probably 3,000 individuals who have been charged with murder over the past 25 years, the one emotion that is present in everyone, notwithstanding what the motivation for their killing is, whether it is a serial killer, whether it's a uh, mass murder, whether it's uh, a uh, person who kills during a robbery, is the emotion of humiliation. The prototype, if uh, you'd like, in, uh, in the sanctuary, I can mention it very readily, is the Cain Abel story, the first crime mentioned in the Bible. Now, if you think about it for a minute, Cain killed Abel for what reason? Well, the story goes that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and did not accept Cain's sacrifice and found Abel's sacrifice favorable. As a result, Cain was humiliated by the rejection and took that humiliation out in lethal terms on his brother 
Now, it also demonstrates that regardless of who humiliates you, you need not necessarily lash out against the humiliator. It can be against a third party or a third person. Examples of that come to mind in my experience of a young woman of Japanese origin who was charged with the killing of her two children. She was depressed and had walked into the Pacific Ocean with her two children and drowned them. They were infant children. The story was that she was being accosted daily by the fact that her husband was having an affair with another woman and the other woman was adding insult to injury because she was calling her up every day telling them what they were doing. And she was unable to tolerate that humiliate, humiliating experience and as a result took that humiliation out in terms of taking the lives of her children whom she loved very dearly uh, for purposes of, of ending the story, she was brought to trial, and rather than be found guilty of murder, which carried a much harsher sentence, she was found guilty of manslaughter in California, uh, partially on the basis of a, a, my psychiatric evaluation, and she was placed on probation with hospital psychiatric treatment and subsequent outpatient treatment, to which she responded very well. So we have these situations where humiliation takes hold. Now you might ask, how does, how does that fit in with cases like the Manson family? Well, Charles Manson spent a good three quarters of his life before the Manson crimes as a ward of one court or another. He was incarcerated in reform schools, at juvenile hall, in foster homes. He lived on the streets. He had been sexually abused on many, many occasions while in jail and as a child. And that humiliation uh, built up in him to the point where if you recall the dynamics of the Manson family, it was gonna be a race war and it was them against us. And that humiliation was taken out on society in general and was to create the struggle and the strife that Manson hoped would lead to uh, the turmoil that would allow him uh, to vent the anger that was associated with the primary humiliating experience that he suffered. Now I'd like to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about the underlying basis for the increase of violence in this country over the last 10 years and 20 years. Uh, for instance, uh, in the article that I read in the Minneapolis St. Paul uh, Monthly Magazine, uh, they were talking about a 200% increase over the last 10 years in Minnesota. Uh, I have uh, a paper here from Los Angeles uh, dated uh, May 1992, and I'll show it to you and I hope you can see it. It's a map of Southern California and each one of those white and red uh, caricatures are shootings. In a 48-hour period, there were 51 shootings, which is basically an average weekend in Los Angeles today. Uh, we have 7 million people, but 51 shootings is a lot of people. And of those 51 shootings, the red are, are lethal shootings. 10 of them had died. 
Uh, we have drive-by shootings. We have uh, uh, random shootings. Uh, I myself uh, have been the victim of an armed robbery in broad daylight three days before Christmas. Uh, I know of 11 other people who are close friends of mine who have also been victims of robbery, and we do not live in the ghetto part of town. We live in uh, what are considered protected areas um, where you should be able to walk the streets, uh, certainly in broad daylight, but many of these uh, uh, assailants are, uh, are sufficiently um, uh, demanding and sufficiently uh, forward that they uh, commit their crimes in broad daylight as well as in the, in the evening. But getting back to the idea of what causes and uh, or what the root causes are of this increasing violence that we see in our society, you can't attribute it to guns alone. After all, there are countries where everybody owns a gun and has it at home. And I'm speaking of countries like Switzerland and Israel. And in Israel, many of the homes have AK-47s and Uzis that are semi-automatic, and some, some of them are automatic, and they don't come close to the violence that we have in our country. I think that you have to look to something more deep and, and, and something more basic. And what I would like to bring forward and talk about in the few minutes that I have left is the integrity of our family structure in this country. 65% of children today are raised in one-parent families. Uh, the statistic in a given section of the United States known as Harlem is that 90% of children born last year were born to unwed mothers. They subsequently are raised in one-parent families also in families that are intact, as well as one-parent families, children today spend six hours a day watching television on the average, and they spend six minutes a day talking to their parents. Now, we tend to think of today's youngsters, and I notice we have a group of them here today, as more advanced than we were. And educationally, they certainly are. They know more by the 10th grade than we knew getting out of college. The information explosion has just been uh, tremendous over the last 20 years. But what we don't realize and what we ascribe to them is that although they are intellectually more advanced than we are, we ascribe a psychological advancement to them that they really don't have. Children don't walk any sooner than they did 300 years ago. They don't talk any sooner than they did 300 years ago. They don't socialize any sooner than they did 300 years ago. And they don't develop psychologically any different than they did 300 years ago. And what's important in the development of a child in relationship to the one-parent family, and I might mention that 90% of violent offenders are male, is that in these one-parent families, which are primarily female-run, the male child does not have a male identification object to identify and relate to. And as a result, psychologically, 
a large percentage of these individuals develop what we as psychiatrists call defective superegos or absent superegos. Uh, the general term for that uh, in Webster's Dictionary would be a, an internal conscience, a concept of right and wrong. This is something that in the general population exists at about a 3 to 4 percent level. So that in a population of 250 million that we have in this country, we might say that we have about 10 million people who have evolved with this deficient or absent superego. Diagnostically, these individuals are called antisocial personalities in today's nomenclature psychiatrically. They used to be called psychopaths or sociopaths, and those three words are relatively synonymous, uh, but more archaic. The word antisocial is much more uh, uh, usable in today's terminology. The, the antisocial personality, by virtue of this absent conscience or absent superego, falls into the category of the individual who treats other individuals as objects. Number one, he has no concept of social right-wrong, and I use the word he because 90% of them are male. Uh, although there are that 10% that are female. And he does not learn from experience. And so the recidivistic rate of criminal behavior is high simply because the goal is to achieve pleasure and achieve enjoyment in life with or at the expense of anybody else. You cannot rehabilitate this individual into understanding that what they're doing is not socially acceptable. You can't say to them, don't steal the apple because it's wrong to steal the apple, because this is not a concept that an individual like this understands. Now you might say, we've got 10 million of these people running around, uh, but we only have maybe 500,000 people in prison. What, what happened to the other nine and a half million? Well, not all antisocial personalities become violent or criminal. Some become politicians. <laughs> and what we have to deal with, however, in, is that in the average population, if we have a 4% incidence of antisocial personality evolving despite normal growth and development, what happens when we have abnormal growth and development associated with the fragmentation of families? And what I would perceive, and I don't have hard data in connection with this, but I have seen it, uh, that we are having we're getting an increased number of antisocial personalities. We're getting younger kids going to juvenile hall at an earlier age committing more serious crimes in the Los Angeles area, and I would say this is also true nationwide. So that if we increase that 4% figure to say conservatively 6%, we are now adding an extra 5 million people who are potentially antisocial, potentially violent, 
and potentially criminal into our society. Now, going from 4 to 6 percent doesn't sound like a lot, but going from 10 to 15 million is a lot. We're talking about an additional 5 million people. That's twice the number of people in the state of Arkansas, where our president comes from. So we're talking about a lot of people. And that burden on society is a difficult burden for society to deal with, simply because we're not dealing with it at a preventive level today. We're dealing with it at a treatment level. And treatment is never as efficient as prevention. Vaccination for disease is much better than the treatment of disease. And the prevention of antisocial behavior is much better than the treatment because we really don't have treatment. Once a person develops this deficient superego, you cannot come back 10 years later and try to resurrect it or create it. It's an impossible thing to do psychologically. The only thing you can hope to do under those circumstances is not to teach an individual that it's wrong to steal or it's wrong to assault or it's wrong to attack, but that the risk is not worth the reward. And that's a difficult thing in today's world, particularly in America, where for every 100 crimes committed nationwide, only two people get incarcerated in prison and get convicted. Uh, the majority of them that are convicted are, uh, spend a very short time in prison and then end up on probation and parole. And the reoffense rate in those circumstances is, is extremely high. Now, I would like to uh, mention a couple of other things briefly before we stop and get into the issue of questions. Uh, those of you who are skeptical about the issue of family integrity, I, I would like to mention a study that I did many years ago in Israel. And it had to do with understanding and documenting juvenile delinquency in groups of individuals in Israel that were readily identifiable. And I broke them up into four categories. They were the European-American background. They were of the Asian background, such as from Iraq and Iran. They were African backgrounds, such as Morocco and Egypt uh, and Algiers and they were Israeli-born individuals. And from year to year, juvenile delinquency was highest in the African group. From year to year. It was second highest in the Asian group. It was then next highest in the Israeli group, which was a hybrid of the African-European-American group. And it was always lowest in the European-American group. And I had to postulate why. The, over the years, and the study was done from 1948 through 1970 or thereabouts, there were three major wars that Israel participated in. There was the War of 1948, the War of 1956, and the War of 1967. In each of those years specifically, delinquency dropped. During turmoil, it dropped. You would think that it would have gotten higher, but it didn't. It got higher, and it it exploded four to five years after each war. And I couldn't understand why. 
But then I got to thinking about it, and I saw a very, very distinct pattern. What happened after each war is there was a mass migration of Jews who were expatriated from the other countries who came to Israel. They came with intact families, but they came with Oriental and Eastern family structures. They lost the ability to adjust, and the father, who was the paternalistic leader in a paternalistic family, lost his control over the kids who were learning how to live in a Western mode as a result of their contact in school, and as uh, wives who were learning how to live in a Western mode because they were working as housekeepers for other individuals' families who lived in Israel who were better off than they were. Well, it took four or five years for this situation to evolve, and ultimately the father lost his control of the family, the family deteriorated, and at that point you saw a disintegration of child behavior into delinquency, which became rampant four or five years after each war. And while the population, the juvenile population, grew 300% in that period of time, the delinquent rate rose 900%. It was a three-to-one ratio. The one comparison I could give you to demonstrate how important this family structure is is, number one, delinquency didn't rise immediately. Now, if you compare that to the migration of the Puerto Rican to New York City or the Hispanics from Mexico to the United States in southwestern United States and Southern California, or the black to the rural south, from the rural south to the northern cities, you find a delinquency rate that rises almost immediately. Now these kids are no different than the kids that migrated to Israel. The one difference that I saw in these migrations were that the black, the Puerto Rican, and the Hispanic did not migrate with intact families. They migrated with either broken families, one-parent families, or with no families at all. And the delinquency rate immediately rose because there was no structure and no chaos for these individual youngsters to function on. One comparison that differs in America from that situation are the Cubans who migrated to Florida. They did migrate with intact families, and the delinquency rate was never, never came close to the rates associated with other minority migrations into this country. So it's important to understand that family values, uh, although I'm not espousing those that were uh, espoused uh, by the Republican platform or the people at the Republican convention, I'm talking about intact family of concerned mothers and fathers interested in their children who are interested in nurturing and allowing their children to blossom to their best that's what I'm talking about in terms of family involvement. And hopefully, uh, we can turn this around providing we put the emphasis on family structure. Uh, and one last thing I might say, it is important for government to do that also. Uh, unfortunately, many government positions or programs are counterproductive. And as one example, I will cite the welfare program. A woman to collect welfare can't have a man in the house. Even if the man is interested in being involved in the family, they have to live a sham life. Uh, 
It's important that this situation change. It's more important that the man be in the House and be involved rather than make bureaucratic pronouncements that men are not involved in or, or cannot be involved under these circumstances. Um, for those of you who haven't gotten the message up to now, uh, there are three things that are important in reducing the amount of violence and terrorism in our country. They are family, family, and family. Thank you. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our guest today is forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ron Markman, who has been speaking to us about understanding violence and violent crimes. At this point, I would like to invite those of you in our audience who must leave to do so, but we hope many of you will remain for the question and answer period. In a few moments, Dr. Markman will return to the podium to answer the questions that you have. If you have a question, I invite you to write it on one of the yellow cards that you will find in front of you or that the ushers handed to you when you arrived in the auditorium, and then to hand it to one of the ushers as they uh, walk down the aisles. Today's questions will be sorted by Nancy Latimer and Jim Peter. And now, Dr. Markman, would you return to the podium? I'd like to begin with this question. What are your views on capital punishment, and do you believe it is, in fact, a deterrent to violent crimes or not? That's a, the question of capital punishment is almost a bogus issue. Uh, number one, uh, you can argue uh, semantically that it is a deterrent because it deters the person who is executed from committing any more crimes. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as, you, as you recall, I earlier mentioned that 62% of individuals who are released from prison nationwide reoffend. The release rate of people who kill who reoffend is only 15%. But it is 15%. So that means that of the people who do kill who are released into the community, 85% of them do not reoffend. And I might suggest that one of the reasons is that people who kill fall into a different category than people who commit other violent crimes. People who kill are a cross-section of our society. Uh, the person who I bought our house from, who had never committed a crime before, was convicted of killing his business partner through a humiliating experience. Uh, nonetheless, but uh, the average person who kills is a cross-section psychiatrically, demographically, socioeconomically of society. This is not true for the rapist, the robber, the arsonist, uh, the person who commits an assault. So that you would necessarily believe and understand that the recidivistic rate would be lower for people who commit homicides and for people who commit other crimes simply because the majority of them are not antisocial personalities. Now getting back to the issue of deterrence in capital cases, we in California have had uh, a new capital uh, execution law since 1978. We have over 300 people on death row. 
We have executed one person since that time. Uh, the appeals are endless. Uh, I examined a young man who was 18 year, years old in 1978 when he killed two young people who were smooching in their car. Uh, he is now awaiting sentencing again, but he has about two and a half more years of appeal left. This goes from 1978 to potentially 1994. We're talking about uh, 17, 16 years. Uh, he will be 34 years old if and when the execution is carried out. Uh, notwithstanding that absurdity, it is silly to punish someone for something he did that long ago. If you were raising kids and caught one of your kids stealing money from your purse or your wallet and wanted to punish him but said to him, wait, your punishment is going to come three months from now. Three months from now, you're not going to get any input with regards to that punishment, and it's not going to mean anything. Secondly, the figure 20,000 homicides a year, of which 10,000 are first-degree murders probably. Uh, the others are manslaughters and vehicular manslaughters. Uh, that makes about 1.8 million homicides in this century. There have been about 1,400 executions in the whole of the United States in this century. And many of them very early in the first three decades of this century weren't at all related to homicide. Some of them were kidnapping executions. If, if you recall Carol Chessman, the last man executed before uh, the moratorium in California, didn't commit a crime of murder. He kidnapped, and he, he symbolically kidnapped someone and was executed for that. So we have 14, and it's, but let's assume 1,400 executions for 1.8 million homicides in this country. There is no way that with a percentage of less than one-half of one percent, and I haven't figured that percentage out, that anything can act as a deterrent. If I told you that the chances were one in 10,000 that you would get punished for what you did, how does that become a deterrent? So that becomes a bogus issue. And the issue of capital punishment is something that should be dealt with politically, but it can't be dealt with on the issue of deterrence. It can't be dealt with on the issue of uh, whether uh, it is the equivalent of demeaning life. It has to be dealt with on what society needs at a political level. Thank you. Uh, another question. At what age is it too late to establish a healthy social personality, especially in boys? And do you think that programs like the Big Brother program can help? As I mentioned, the development of the superego is related to the identification of a young boy with his father or father figure. And the crucial years are the years between three and seven. If it doesn't develop within those years, it will not develop beyond that. It's very similar to an ophthalmologic disease called amblyopia, where if a child doesn't get his eyes uh, patched because of either being cross-eyed or wall-eyed, and it's not done within the first six or seven years, the eye will never develop, and he will essentially have 
the vision he was born with, namely 2200 vision, which is extremely myopic. So after the age of seven, if you've had defective superego development, uh, the child basically is a lost cause for that level of uh, psychological growth and health. Thank you. What connection is made between antisocial personalities and prenatal drug and alcohol use in the mother? Um, we're not sure. Uh, clearly, prenatal alcohol and drug use in women leads to serious complications. It, it leads to prematurity in many women. It leads to low birth weight in many women. There appears to be uh, a higher percentage of what we now know as alcohol fetal syndrome associated with that, which leads to poor educational capability, uh, which uh, leads to school dropout, which is another factor associated with uh, education, uh, with, with violence, the lack of education. The individuals that I see in prison who commit violent crimes have, uh, on the average, a ninth grade education and our, our dropouts. Not only that, but they have about a fifth grade to sixth grade reading ability and math ability. So they haven't functioned well uh, in the educational system. Uh, and more than likely, they haven't functioned well, not because they couldn't, but because enough uh, emphasis isn't placed on the basic requirements of education. We had a, uh, a uh, football star at UCLA uh, who graduated as an uh, all-American football player, didn't know how to read. Uh, now that is an embarrassment for a state university like UCLA, but that's true at many universities today because the emphasis is, is in the wrong place and we are doing less educationally than we should be in terms of allowing kids to blossom under our educational system. Thank you. Apparently, there is only one known serial killer who is a woman, and she now awaits execution on death row. Why are women statistically less violent than men? Well, I, I alluded to that a little earlier in that women usually have that female identification figure in their uh, formative years of growth in their three to seven year age group. Uh, the identification with the mother usually precludes antisocial uh, personality development. The other aspect uh, of uh, less violence in women is biologic. If you give individuals testosterone, which is the male hormone, if you give women testosterone, they become more aggressive. Uh, and androgens, which is the generic name for male hormones, somehow creates more aggressivity in individuals, uh, and it was well known in ancient times when uh, kings and czars and rajas uh, used to create eunuchs uh, because the eunuchs that they created by getting rid of uh, their sexual organs created more docile individuals who were more receptive to control because of the lack of testosterone and the male hormone. Thank you. How do you assess the role of the Los Angeles Police Department in dealing with the violent crimes most recently during the riots and the courts? 
Well, having been there, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, there are very few times in, in one's life where you know exactly where you were when something happens or, or you heard something happens. Uh, I think I can count on one hand in my lifetime. Uh, one was the birth of my first uh, child. I know that because I was in the room. Uh, the second was the death of Franklin Roosevelt. I remember exactly where I was when that happened. And the third was the death of John F. Kennedy. I hear, I see nodding in the, in, in the audience that I know exactly where I was, and I know exactly where I was when I heard of the rioting in Los Angeles. Um, what is tragic about what happened in Los Angeles is that what it appears that there was no emergency treatment plan in place for the Los Angeles Police Department to function effectively under the, such circumstances. And it was erroneously thought that if you let the individuals at the corner of Florence and Normandy, which is that area where uh, Reginald Denny, and I, that, I remember that name simply because it was the same name of an actor at one time, Reginald Denny, uh, was attacked. If they let that area alone, it would burn itself out. Uh, they felt that if they entered that area, they would merely inflame. That was an erroneous assumption. It was an error. It was a miscalculation. And what it led to, essentially, with all the publicity that television showed, was that everybody was having a very good time. And the risk of getting apprehended was nil. You could go out and get what you needed. Most people who committed those crimes were not wanting. Uh, I recall one situation of an individual driving up in a late model car on television, going into a store and coming out with uh, goods and supplies. These are not people who were wanting necessarily. They were not necessarily people from the area. They were people who saw what was going on on television, figured they could get part of the spoils and did so. And I think the police just miscalculated and made an error. Thank you. Does the integrity of your family theory about violence include extended family and community supports influence on a child's psychological development in a single parent home? Uh, in one word, yes. I think extended families are very important. Uh, we don't have them anymore. We're too mobile a society. Uh, children don't live next to their parents anymore. Uh, grandparents live far away. Uh, aunts and uncles aren't available, or if they are, uh, uh, too hard to get to. We don't have enough time. Well, we do have enough time. It's more important, I think, to spend time with these extended families, uh, even if it's simply on holiday situations, such as Christmas and Easter, uh, than to uh, go to a ball game. Uh, I, I uh, recall when our our children were young and we have three of them, uh, we took them to Europe with us uh, for a three-week vacation. And when we came back and we were talking about uh, the uh, trip and showing individuals uh, our pictures or forcing them to see our pictures, uh, they commented on the fact, well, why did you take your kids? It was, why didn't you get away from them? Well, we didn't want to get away from our kids. It wasn't important. Uh, it was important to take them with us to participate as a family in this endeavor. We didn't 
get to see as much necessarily, but our kids to this day remember our trip through southern France. Uh, uh, we were in a car and they remember uh, the trip and the stops and everything else and it will uh, be with them for a lifetime. And I think that's, that's the important part of what parents can do with their children. Thank you. Um, concerning the humiliation trait that you have seen in the 3,000 murders you have dealt with, what percentage roughly of these people would you classify as loners or outsiders, people to a greater or lesser degree shunned by society? Um, it's hard to say in terms of a percentage. I would say a significant percentage, and I would give you a range of possibly in the area of 35 to 55 percent. Uh, these are individuals who are uh, either malcontents or misfits or individuals who don't know how to get along in society, uh, who don't know how to respond well, who don't have the internal control mechanisms necessary to socialize, and who don't have the skills to go anywhere. They're individuals who, uh, who commit uh, rapes and robberies because they don't have much else to do, uh, and that's a sad commentary. Uh, I think it's important. Uh, now, can we teach them what to do? Again, if, if they are antisocial personalities, you can't teach them in terms of moral imperatives or moral values. That's an impossibility. What you have to do is make life more functional for them, or in this society where we value individual freedom, our society will have to put up with the recidivistic behavior once they're released. Thank you. Another question. Would outlawing fictitious killing on our television programs have any long-term effects on our homicide rates? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I read a study recently where it was shown that there, over the space of a week, there were 10 violent acts per hour per television station available for children to see. And if they watch television at the rate that I mentioned earlier of six hours per day, by the time they become adults, they see about 200,000 killings and violent acts on television. Uh, many of these people that are killed are killed over and over again because they're the same people that act in different plays. Uh, and what's interesting is, from the psychology point of view, is that a child doesn't understand what death is until about the age of eight or nine, the permanency of it. Uh, so that uh, children who lose loved ones, such as grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents, really don't comprehend the finality of the death prior to that age. And if they watch television, they don't see finality of death under those circumstances either. And at that point, it becomes merely an, an exercise in futility. Uh, and it can be transposed or transferred into day-to-day -day life very readily. Uh, I just recently listened to an individual who was a member of a gang in Los Angeles who was interviewed uh, uh, by a commentator. And he said uh, that he accepted the fact uh, that his time would come shortly. This is a 16-year-old boy, that his time would come shortly, but that in the meantime, he was going to have retribution and vengeance on all other gang members, other 
in other gangs that killed members of his gang or interloped on his turf or did something that he found objectionable, which, quote, humiliated him. Again, another element of humiliation in that kind of behavior. But he did not feel that he was going to live for another five years. He'd already lost three or four friends under the age of 18 to gunfire. And he readily admitted, uh, he was anonymous, that he had probably been instrumental in snuffing out the lives of three or four other people. Uh, so that under those circumstances, uh, and, and the, the, the last response he made was, well, they do it on television, so there's nothing wrong with doing it in real life. And so I would agree that just as violence begets violence, the observation of violence also does so. But it does so in a very small percentage of people. Uh, some of the things you have to understand. Most dangerous people and violent people are not mentally ill, and most mentally ill people don't commit violent acts. Most people who watch violence on television don't transfer that violence into their daily life but a small percentage do. And even if it's only 2%, we're talking about 5 million people. That's a lot of people in a country of 250 million. Thank you. We have just a few minutes left. Uh, another question from our audience. If you were asked for advice from President-elect President Clinton on how to deal with crime, what would you say? I think it is a, well, I, I, first I say hello to President Clinton. Um, I think it's a, uh, a fantasy to believe that crime can be dealt with at a federal level. It's too far removed from the day-to-day -day guts of mundane living. This has to be dealt with at a local level. Uh, the federal government has entered primarily in terms of protecting individual rights, and the individual rights need to be protected. There's no question about that. But those individual rights should be protected at the local level and need not be supervised at the federal level. The federal government cannot take a diverse country of this kind without creating more and more bureaucracy and fashion a criminal justice system or a program to prevent further violence and crime. It must be done at the local level. And I would ask uh, that the president uh, in uh, his new administration promote this kind of work and activity at local levels. Thank you. I want to remind our audience that the next town hall forum will be on December 3rd when our guest will be Michael Doris speaking on rewriting history. And I want to thank you, Dr. Martman, for what you've had to say to us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.